As we continue our sermon series in the book of Daniel, we want to read the passage today in Jan Daniel chapter 4, beginning with verse 19 through verse 37. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong, so that its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and which was food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade, and whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field. Till seven periods of time pass over him, this is the interpretation. O king, it is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my lord the king, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you. Till you know the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will, and as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy. Mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of his royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately, the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among the men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. At the end of the days, I, 
Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High. And I praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me. And I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. The reading of God's word. Well, one of my favorite uh, things about reading history is reading all of the different stories of radical and dramatic and even shocking uh, conversions uh, to Christ. Good job, Tanner. What a dad. One of my favorite things is just reading stories about people who wanted nothing to do with God, uh, who did everything they could in their power to keep God out of their lives, and you would never expect them to turn to God, but who in the end eventually did. And history is full of all kinds of stories like this. One of my favorite stories is the story of John Newton. And you might know John Newton. He's the guy who wrote Amazing Grace. Uh, We sing it to this day. He was also uh, really instrumental in ending the slave trade in England um, uh, back in the day. And uh, just an incredible legacy. But before Jesus saved him, he was the last guy in the world that you would ever think of uh, turning to Christ. Not only was he actually a slave trader himself, but he was also um, really arrogant in the way that he sinned. Like he loved to sin so much that he wanted to tempt other people to join him in his sin. And that was kind of like his life's mission. He was the Pied Piper of debauchery and licentiousness. Listen to how he put it. He said, I sin with a high hand. Like he was really proud about his sin. And I made it my study to tempt and seduce others as well. And then one day he's out at sea and a massive storm overtakes his ship and he's scared to death and he's awakened to his senses and he remembers these Bible verses that he had heard as a kid and he cries out to the God of heaven for mercy and for forgiveness and the slave trader is redeemed. Never the same again. I also love the story of C.S. Lewis, author, philosopher, professor, kind of the Don of Oxford. Um, He's still read and revered to this day by so many people. Maybe you like his fiction, The Chronicles of Narnia, or you've read his philosophy. He's just a genius. Um, But he was also a staunch atheist and a really firm opponent of Christ, so much so that he tried to convince his friends not to follow Christ who were Christians. Like, he he was a new atheist before there was such a thing. He was trying to convert people to his atheism. He wrote to one of them, And these are his words, and I quote, All religion is an attempt by primitive man to cope with the terrors of the natural world. Could you imagine the author of mere Christianity writing that? That sounds just like Marx. I mean, that is the religion is just the opium of the masses, right? 
And yet, in spite of all of his attempts to disprove Christianity, in spite of all of his attempts to deconvert his Christian friends, he too was chased down by the God of heaven. Listen to how he described his conversion. You must picture me alone in that room at Magdalene, night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted, even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him of whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. In the Trinity term of 1929, May 22nd, I finally gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed, perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. I did not see then what is now the most shining and obvious thing, the divine humility which will accept a convert even on such terms. The prodigal son at least walked home on his own two feet, but who can duly adore that love which will open the high gates to a prodigal who is brought in kicking and struggling, resentful, and darting his eyes in every direction for a chance of escape? And then listen to this. The hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men, and his compassion is our liberation. History is full of stories like these. You have stories like this. I have a story like this. Men and women doing everything in their power that they possibly can to run away from God and keep him out of their lives. And men and women being chased down by God who's doing everything he possibly can to rescue, redeem, and restore their lives. That's really my story. And if you're a believer, that's your story. This is exactly what we see taking place in Daniel 4 as well. For me, this has to be the most dramatic, the most radical, and the most shocking conversion story in the history of the world. And I, I spent a lot of time this past week thinking about it and trying to figure out if there was one that was more shocking than this. There isn't. We're not just talking about a slave trader turned slave liberator. And we're not just talking about a Christ denier turned you know, Christ defender. We're talking about King Nebuchadnezzar here, king of Babylon, who conquered God's holy city, who <laughs> destroyed God's sacred temple, who exiled God's chosen people, who castrated his chosen men, who threatened to incinerate any of them who didn't bow and worship him, King Nebuchadnezzar. Not to mention that he just so happened to be the representative head of the kingdom of darkness, which is what Babylon represented back then. It's what it still represents to this day. It wasn't just the birthplace of all the pagan gods. It was the dwelling place of the pagan gods. I told you a few weeks ago, archaeologists have unearthed over 50 temples dedicated to all of these pagan gods. We know that in their pantheon, they had 70, so they just haven't found the other 20. Nebuchadnezzar believed that he had been empowered by these gods, that he was indebted to these gods, but not just all of the gods, but who they thought was the God of gods. You remember this, the one they called Marduk, who's also called Bel, the dragon with the forked tongue. 
We saw a few weeks ago that this dragon, Marduk or Bel, the, the chief god of the Babylonians, was the same dragon from Genesis that deceived Adam and Eve. And it's the same dragon that shows up in Revelation to deceive the nations. Their chief god was the devil himself, and Nebuchadnezzar thought that he was his choice prince. Listen to how he described his loyalty to, to Bel. This is on that tablet I showed you a few weeks ago. This is a little extended, though. He said, I'm Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the exalted prince and the favorite of the god Marduk, the beloved of the god Nebu, who he just so happened to be named after. To Marduk, my lord, I make supplication, O eternal prince, lord of all being. This is like a psalm of David to the devil, by the way. Just track with me here. Guide in a straight path the king whom you love and whose name you have proclaimed as was pleasing to you. I am the prince, the favorite, the creature of your hand. You have created me and entrusted me with dominion over all people. According to your favor, Lord, which you bestow on all people, cause me to love your exalted worship. Create in my heart the worship of your divinity and grant whatever is pleasing to you because you have my life. Could you imagine this guy worshiping Bell with all of his heart somehow being chased down and won by God? Again, he's not just a slave trader. He's not just a Christ denier. He is the devil's main man in the world. And he is about to be won by the real Lord of all being. I can't think of a more dramatic, radical, or shocking conversion in the history of the world than this one. So I want to show you this story together. This is his testimony. Part of it is actually written in the first person. It is him telling his story. We didn't get to read the beginning just for the sake of time, but we're going to look back over it and, and kind of nutshell it for you. I'm, I felt bad. I'm making all of our readers read like 50 verses a week, and we've got to like make it more concise uh, for their sake. But Doug did a good job. But I'm, we're going to look back at this story. This is his testimony. This is him sharing his redemption story to the world, and we're reading it today, now 2,600 years later. Now, there are five different sections to it, or you could call it five chapters, and I'm going to highlight each of these chapters as we kind of work our way through the text, and we marvel at this incredible act of mercy here. The first chapter in Nebuchadnezzar's story, we could just call the warning. We didn't read the beginning of it for the sake of time, but again, Essentially what has happened here is, is Nebuchadnezzar has gotten a dream, just like in, in Daniel chapter 2, where he's seen something that's going to happen in the future. He has a really uh, strange sense that that dream is about him, and he's freaking out. So he calls Daniel, just like in chapter 2, and he says, listen, I need you to make sense of this dream for me because nobody else can. And so Daniel tells him what his dream means. And in this dream, he sees a tree. And the tree is incredible. It grows strong and big and it bears lots of fruit. And the animals find their shade under its branches that stretch to the heavens. And you can see it all over the world. It's talking about his dominion and all of this stuff. And Daniel says, you are this tree. But listen, the tree is about to get chopped down. It's about to get stripped of its fruit, robbed of its glory. Until all that's left of you is your stump and some roots. Then after telling the dream, 
he gives even more bad news. And he basically says, listen, king, you're going to lose your mind. You're going to be driven out of your kingdom and you're going to live like an animal eating grass and soaking up the dew, just like an animal does. Your hair is going to get so long. It's going to look like eagle's wings. Your fingernails and toenails are going to look like claws. It's awful. But look at verse 27. It's not just a prophecy. He's, he's trying to give a warning too. He actually gives some counsel. In verse 27, he says, But therefore, O king, listen to my counsel. Let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. So it's a prophecy that comes with a potential way out. My kids are really into Encanto right now. I know most of you are in your 20s, so you have no idea what I'm talking about. Have any of you, just show of hands, have any of you seen Encanto yet? Wow, I'm actually pretty surprised by that. That's like at least 30% of you. Um, <laughs> there's a guy named Bruno. And Bruno, sorry? Huh? TikTok. Oh, you know it from TikTok. Okay, good. Everyone's like trying to shout at me and I can't. You guys are on TikTok. I, I stopped with Instagram, okay? So I don't even know what TikTok is. But um, yeah, we don't talk about Bruno. It's basically this guy who can tell the future and, and everyone's like blaming everything on Bruno. Like the guy gets a gut and he's like, Bruno said I was gonna get a gut and see, I have a gut. But with every prophecy, there's a way out. Like if, if Bruno says you're gonna get a gut, then eat healthy, you know, don't, don't, you don't have to get a gut. It's essentially what, what Daniel is saying here. He's like, listen, I'm telling you what's going to happen in the future, but it's not just prophecy. There is, there's a way out. This might happen, but if you break off your sins, if you stop being such a jerk to the poor, if you stop being such a bad guy, if you, if you, if you leave that behind, in other words, if you repent, God might actually preserve you. He might prolong your kingdom. You might not get chopped down like that tree. Now, I love Daniel because he's, again, he's like 600 years pre-Jesus. And so he doesn't understand the mercy of God like you and I understand the mercy of God. He says, if you repent, God might relent. Like, he, he's not sure He's like, I hope, I, I know something of the mercy of God, but I, he might just do that for you. But for you and me on this side of the cross, we know that if you repent, there are no ifs, ands, or buts about it. God will show mercy to those who repent from their sins and turn to him. Daniel doesn't know that. All he knows is that he is standing in front of the, one of the most brutal and sadistic and evil men who have ever walked planet earth. And so he's giving him this potential way out. Uh, in my study, I, I've read a lot about King Nebuchadnezzar that I can't share because there are kids in the room. He was so evil. Like I literally, I can't share the depths of his depravity because like I said, it would be uncomfortable for our children. All I can say is that 
He is exactly what you would expect the devil's main man to be like in the world. And yet Daniel still has hope that God might have mercy on him. I know what stands out the most to me in this opening chapter of Nebuchadnezzar's testimony is the way that Daniel talks to this man. And I want to stop and just pivot here because we're talking about Nebuchadnezzar, but I just want to highlight this real quick. Daniel is talking to one of the most evil men who has ever walked planet Earth, and yet he is full of love and compassion and mercy, and he's actually hoping that this guy will turn to God. I, I think the dream is fascinating, but I think Daniel's response to this dream could be life-changing for you. I know it has been for me. You would think that Daniel would get this dream and he would be jumping for joy, at least on the inside. You can't show Neb that you're happy about it because he'll burn you alive and all kinds of other bad stuff. But at least on the inside, his oppressor is about to get taken down by his God. Like that's what, that's what they've all been waiting for. But he's not. Look back at verse 19. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, who's, again, he's given this name after the devil. Bel is the name for the devil. This is their chief God. And so they change his name from Daniel to worshiper of the devil. He was dismayed for a while and his thoughts alarmed him. And the king had to console him. He said, Belteshazzar, don't let the dream worry you. Don't let it alarm you. Just lay it out for me. And then Daniel says, he's so disheartened. He's so worried and he's just overflowing with compassion and mercy that he starts out the interpretation with like, listen, king, I wish this was true of your enemies and not you. And, and we should just stop there and think like, Daniel, you're his enemy. He conquered you. He castrated you. Your future's gone. You're his servant. You're his enemy. In spite of the king's wickedness, in spite of the brutality, and all of the evil that he had done, you know what that verse shows us? Daniel had actually grown to care for him. Daniel had actually grown and developed a genuine love for that guy. This is so important for us to see and to grasp because there's a principle here for all of us who have been called to speak warning in the world. And the principle is that the warning of judgment should always be shared on the lips of compassion with the heart and a spirit of mercy. Warning of judgment should always be shared out of a spirit of mercy and compassion. It should be the outcome of genuine love. Not just the genuine love that we have for God, but the genuine love that we have for others. Even the worst of the worst. Book of Romans is a perfect example of this. Romans 1. Yes, there is a God in heaven. And yes, he cares about the affairs of earth. Romans 2, one day he's coming to judge 
the affairs of earth, specifically the sins of the world. Romans 3, every single person who's ever lived has sinned and as a result is a sinner. So God's coming to judge every single man, woman, and child on planet earth. Romans 5 though, but God loves you so much that he sent his only son into the world to take away your sin and to give you his righteousness. So there's this warning of Romans, and then there's this definite way out. It's the same message that Daniel is giving to Nebuchadnezzar, except it's certain. It's not a possibility. But what I want you to see is that Romans 9 shows us why Paul is giving us the warning. Like one through eight is the warning and the way out. Romans 9 is the heart in which it was written. Romans 9 is the spirit of compassion and mercy and heartache for the sinners who were meant to receive it. Look at how the Apostle Paul puts it. He says, I am speaking with the truth of Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. In other words, guys, the warnings that are laid out in the first few chapters of the book of Romans, this gospel message, are an outworking of genuine love for the lost. If you speak the warning without love, you're missing it. And I mean, when I was in college, there was this church that was famous. I call it a church because that's what they call themselves. They're not a church, but it was like Westboro Baptist Church. They were all over the news. I don't even know if they're still around. It's just kind of tuned myself out to them. They're crazy. And they would just walk around with all of these signs, just with the most like harsh and brutal warnings, quote unquote. And in their mind, they were being prophets, in their mind, they were speaking the world, word of God to a world that was far from God. But what I want you to see and what you and I really need to understand is that if you were a prophet, you were going to be like Daniel the prophet. And Daniel the prophet went in with love and with care and compassion and with empathy, just like the apostle Paul did. And so we carry this message of the gospel out of love and with, with concern for our fellow man. That's a side note, though. That's not the main point of the sermon. Okay, let's move on. Nebuchadnezzar gets this warning from his friend, who's supposed to be his enemy, but he's not. And now the big question is, what did he do with it? Chapter 2, we'll just call it rebellion. A year goes by, nothing changes. All of the sadism, all of the brutality, all of the wickedness, no repentance whatsoever. In fact, it's like his pride grew over the next 12 months. He got the warning and he's just like, man, I'm, I'm above this warning. Look back at verse 29. At the end of the 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon and the king answered and said, is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? His pride has just like gone to a whole nother level. What's Daniel talking about? I'm so powerful. My kingdom is so wonderful. No one could ever chop this down. So he ignores the warning, stands firm in his ways. I want to pause here. Let me just say that 
before we judge him too harshly, I think naturally we're all pretty much like this when it comes to warnings. We all have a pretty hard time listening to and responding well to warnings. For example, um, I read this past week, open heart surgery is an intense operation. It is a really important operation. It's a life-saving operation, one of the most important you could ever have. It, it saves hundreds of thousands of lives every single year in America, 600,000 a year, actually. You know what's fasc fascinating, though, about bypass surgery, open heart surgery? is that while it is a life-saving remedy, it's only temporary. It doesn't last forever. And if you don't change your diet and your exercise and you start changing some of your habits, you're gonna have the same problem again down the road. So I read this survey. It was a medical survey of like all of these hundreds of thousands of people. I don't know how many they actually surveyed of, of people who, who had this um, surgery. And all of their doctors warned them, you gotta do the right thing. You've gotta stop smoking and drinking and eating burgers every day. You've gotta start exercising or this is gonna happen again. Do you know how, ma how many of those patients actually changed the way they lived and listened to the warning? 10%. 10%. 90% of open heart surgery survivors change nothing about the way they live. I read another story that the Associated Press ran a few years ago about a man who just refused to wear a seatbelt at all costs, like he was not gonna give in. He was ticketed and fined 32 times in five years for not wearing a seatbelt. I feel like they were just hunting him down. Like they knew he wasn't gonna do it. And so the cop just hung out outside of his house every day and was like, just waiting for him to pull out. How do you get 32 tickets in five years? He really wanted to make a point, though, that like he was the boss of himself and freedom, you know, America, and no one was going to tell him what to do. Finally, though, he got tired of paying all of the fines. And so he came up with this great idea to make a fake seatbelt. And so he, he literally got a strap, tied it to the back of the real seatbelt, and then he would drape it over himself so that he would stop getting pulled over. The guy out front parked outside of his house to see, oh, I guess he's wearing his seatbelt now. And he'd be like, I'm not. <laughs> you know, it's fake. Um, for him, it wasn't about the time. For him, it was about liberty. You know, again, America. Um, the good news is his trick worked. He never got pulled over ever again. Bad news. Got in a head-on collision and was thrown into his steering wheel, and he was killed. Medical examiners all agreed that if he had been wearing his seatbelt, more than likely that would not have happened, and he would have survived. Now listen, I know it's an extreme story. But it's almost exactly what 90% of open-heart surgery patients are doing. And it's exactly what Nebuchadnezzar was doing with the warning that he received from God. And if we understand what's really going on here, it's exactly what billions of people are doing right now all over the world with the same warning. It's not, if you don't change your diet and your exercise habits, you might have a heart attack. And it's not, if you don't wear a seatbelt, you might die. It is. If you don't turn from your sins, you will die in them. That's the warning. 
Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It is a warning and it is a way out. Every single one of us have sinned and therefore are sinners. So there's a warning. Our sin has earned for us death. Turn from it. And there's a way out. There is a free gift. And that gift is from the Son of God himself. And that gift is eternal life. So the question is, what are you doing with the warning? Nebuchadnezzar grew in pride. He saw himself as above the warning. Like it applied to everyone else except for him. It could happen to anyone else except for him. He was above it. He was too rich. He was too great. He was too powerful to worry about some unseen God in the heavens. Like Edward Smith, the captain of the Titanic, who said that God himself couldn't sink the ship. Nebuchadnezzar said, do your worst. See what happens. And so he decided to hold on to his independence, strap on the fake seatbelt, and take his chances. It leads to chapter three. Look at what happens. Verse 31. While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven that unseen God said, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you will be driven from among men, and your dwelling will be with the beasts of the field, and you will be made to eat grass like an ox for seven years until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And immediately the word of the Lord was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers, and his nails were like that of bird's claws. I have a painting by William Blake a couple hundred years ago. This is his rendition of Nebuchadnezzar. Just like use your imagination. I feel like that's probably the best that's out there the most powerful and important and richest king in the entire world was reduced to that. Here's the point. If an immense amount of pride is the most significant obstacle for this man, guess what God's gonna do? He is going to get him to turn away from his sin and turn to God by giving him an intense amount of humiliation to bring him to his senses. In other words, God is gonna have to take away that man's sanity so that he can see reality. And Nebuchadnezzar thought that he was the builder. He thought he was the ruler. He thought he was the conqueror. He thought he had accomplished all of these amazing things on his own. God had to get him to understand that he was nothing more than an instrument in the palm of his hand. Immense pride can only be cured by intense humiliation. In order for the lost to be found, in order for a sinner to be redeemed, the same thing is true. We have to be brought to our senses. We have to be exposed to the depths of our need. In fact, most of your stories in this room Start right there. I hit rock bottom. I was chasing all of the stuff that the world says is the good life and everything that was supposed to bring me happiness and I was going after it with 110% abandon and I hit rock bottom. It's the mercy of God in your life. 
Jesus said, blessed are those who know that they're spiritually bankrupt, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn over their sin, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, not the proud, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Until you realize your inability to build your life on your own, and even more importantly, your inability to get into the kingdom of God on your own, you will never turn away from your sin and you will never turn to Christ. If you think you've got enough resources and holiness and strength and money to earn your way or buy your way into his presence, you will never submit your to his authority in your life. I can't tell you how many people I've talked to and I'm like, hey, when you stand before God, because we're all going to stand before God one day, and he says, why should I let you in? What are you going to say? And they say, well, I'm going to show them all the good things I did. And I just want to say, like, so are you going to try to bribe him? With, with your good? What about all the bad stuff you've done? Don't, what's, what's gonna happen to that? Well, I'm hoping my good will outweigh my bad. I'm like, I don't think a righteous judge works like that. You'll never submit to his authority in your life if you think that you can earn your way into his presence. Listen, guys, listen, this is Jesus in a nutshell. The brilliant do not obtain the kingdom of God the bankrupt do. And so you need to recognize that you have no resources internally, that your sin is too great to ever get you into the presence of a holy God. It's another way of saying that deliverance is only available to those who actually recognize they're destitute. Pride is the most significant obstacle that keeps us from turning away from our sin and to the God of heaven. And so in his kindness towards us, in his love for us, he does whatever it takes to get rid of it. That's what he's doing with Nebuchadnezzar. Immense pride requires intense humiliation, and yet even in the humiliation, we see the compassion and the goodness of God. As Lewis put it, the hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men. His compassion is our liberation. That's why it's good to hit rock bottom, because you come to your senses and realize that you can't build your own life let alone purchase yourself eternity. And that leads us to chapter four, repentance. Look at verse 34. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the most high and I praise and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation and all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, including him. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand. None can say to him, what have you done? 
Guys, that is the praise of a man who finally sees God and the world and himself as they truly are. He's gone from gushing with praise over Bel, this Marduk, this pseudo-God, and now he is worshiping the real God of gods and praising him for his dominion and his kingdom. His eyes have finally been opened to reality. And I think that the transformation is incredible because he goes from being a guy who's obsessed with his dominion and now he's praising God for God's dominion. He goes from being a guy who's obsessed with the brilliance of his kingdom to, to singing about God's kingdom. He, he doesn't carry out his will in the heavens and on earth like he thought he did. He, he can be reduced to an animal with a snap of the finger. God controls everything. You can just see the total flip in this pagan king. This is the testimony of God's amazing grace in his life. I just like imagine if you were able to write like John Newton, this is his way of saying, I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. This is his amazing grace. Can you just imagine the scenes in Babylon? Like we freaked out when Kanye had some sort of conversion. Can you imagine the scenes? King Nebuchadnezzar, Bell's choice prince, is now worshiping Yahweh Elohim. What? What's going on? <laughs> the one who thought he had conquered God and destroyed his temple and carried his vessels back to Bell's temple has now been conquered by that same God, submitting to his authority. He's not demanding praise from his people anymore. He's gushing with praise for God. Now, how did he get there? This is so significant, especially for those of you in the room who still aren't there yet. What caused this massive transformation? He says it, he tells us right in the text. He says, at the end of the days, I lifted my eyes to heaven. You should circle that phrase in your Bible because it is jam-packed with meaning and it goes all the way back to the Old Testament with the people of God. Guys, saving faith is all about the direction of our vision. So rebellion looks to self for salvation. Repentance looks up to God. Rebellion looks to earth for satisfaction. Repentance looks to heaven for satisfaction. Rebellion is all about self-reliance and what we can do and what we can accomplish. Repentance is all about self forgetfulness. For example, I had a friend a couple of years ago who was at the height of his life. He's a lot like most of you in this room in his 20s, living the dream, great job out of college, making a lot of money, great apartment, great girlfriend, awesome social life. And um, I had, I'd share the gospel with him a couple of times and, and he believed it. Like he knew it was true. But every time we got to the moment where it was like decision time and I was like, okay, man, like are you going to are you going to turn from your sin, break off the sin, and are you going to follow Jesus? He'd be like, no, I can't do it. I'm like, why not? And he'd literally be crying. And he'd be like, I can't give Jesus control. And he was just like, I, I, I'm afraid. If I give Jesus control, he's going to ruin my life. He's going to take away all the good stuff, and I'm going to have to suffer, and life's going to be really hard. I, I cannot give him Control, And so he did everything he could to keep Jesus away. Long story short, um, 
the amazing job. He kept it. He got promoted, but it lost its luster. And with every promotion, he was like, what, is this it? Like, this is, this doesn't do anything for my heart. Lost its luster. Girlfriend didn't last. Parties didn't satisfy. His health started to deteriorate. More and more things started to crumble all around him. And after a few months, I hadn't seen him in a few months. The last time I had saw him was at my house. We had a fire pit, and I felt like I might have pushed him a little hard after a year and a half of these conversations. And I was like, well, that's it. Never going never gonna to hear from my boy again. A few months passed by. He texted me. He's like, we got to get up. I was like, all right. So I went, picked him up. I don't know why he didn't drive. I, it was like a date. I'm like, I'll pick you up at 7. You know, I show up to his apartment. And I pick him up. And he... He jumps in my car, and the first thing he says is like, Ben, you're the first person that needs to know this. I had to tell you I gave my life to Jesus. I was like, what? Like, what happened? Like, I wasn't there. I've been doing all this work for so long. Like, <laughs> what do you mean? And, uh, <laughs> and he was like, listen, my friend dragged me to Elevation Church. And I was like, are you serious? <laughs> like, you know I'm a pastor, man. And he's like, no, my friend drive me to Elevation Church. And, and guess what the preacher was preaching on? And I was like, I don't know. I wasn't there. I was at my church, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and, and he was like, he was preaching on control. And, uh, and I was like, oh, wow. And he said, yeah, I was preaching on con- he was preaching on control. And, and I realized in that moment, he's like, the Holy Spirit ripped the scales off my eyes. And I realized I didn't actually have control. All I had was the illusion of control. He's like, I was trying so hard to preserve my life and build my life and create the good life for myself and everything that I was trying to do was crumbling and it wasn't working and I realized that I couldn't build a life. He's like, I gave Jesus control. (laughs) He's still at elevation. Good for him. (laughs) Love Love my friends over there. Some of you in this room need to hear this today. Because you're in the same boat as my friend was and you're in the same boat that Nebuchadnezzar was in as well. Some of you are convinced that you can build a life for yourself. Some of you are convinced that you can save your life on your own. But as Jesus said, if you want to build your life first, you've got to lose it. This is the paradox of the good life, by the way. It's only when we forget our lives, that we actually begin to find them. And Jesus knew that. Some of you need to stop looking inward and downward, and today, for the first time ever, you need to turn your eyes to heaven and look up and put your faith in the one who can save, the one who can redeem. Just like the Israelites in the desert who had been bitten by those vipers, they're dying from the venom. Moses raises up a serpent on, on a pole, and it's, there's so much imagery. We don't have time. That's another sermon. But basically, they, he tells the Israelites, all you have to do is look up. I know it doesn't make sense. I know you can't science this one. It's a step of faith. But all you've got to do is take that step of faith. And if you would just look up to that serpent that's raised up on that pole, you will be healed. And Jesus came along later and he said, you know what happened in the desert with that snake? That's what's happening with my life. 
I'm going to get raised up on a cross so that anyone who looks to me, anyone who raises their eyes to me will be healed not from the venom of snakes, but the venom of sin that has permeated their entire hearts. I will make them well. And so today, if you are still looking down and you're still looking in, it is time to look to him who hung on the cross for you so that you can be healed. Pray that you'll do it today. For Nebuchadnezzar, it took seven years of living like an animal. Don't wait that long. Maybe today, look up. Finally, fifth chapter of his story. It's restoration. Look back at verse 36. At the same time, my reason returned to me. For the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. This should blow you away. In fact, maybe this week, just go and read a little bit more about Nebuchadnezzar so you can know how bad of a guy he was, okay? This guy deserved hell. 100%. If, if there's ever been a person in the world that deserved it, it was this guy. And yet, not only is he forgiven, but his entire kingdom is restored. He's not just saved. He's just given a second chance at life. He's not sidelined. He's not demoted. He's not replaced. His glory returns to him. His majesty returns to him. His kingdom returns to him. Should blow us away by the mercy of God. The language that he uses is actually the same language of the Genesis mandate, which we saw a couple weeks ago, or maybe it was last week. I can't even remember now. Genesis mandate is basically God telling Adam and Eve to Edenize the world. to to make the rest of the earth like the Garden of Eden. That's the Genesis mandate. That's what everyone has been trying to do since Adam and Eve, but none of us are able to do it. So so the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, is trying to create utopia. He's trying to create the greatest kingdom ever. He's trying to Edenize the planet, but it is awful. I mean, there's definitely beauty in it, but there's a lot of evil in it as well. So he has failed at his job. And essentially what God is doing here is he's redeeming him, he's forgiving him, and then he's saying, listen, I want to give you another shot at Edenizing this place. I want to give you the ability and the power to do what I told your forefathers to do in the garden. This is so profound. God doesn't just save you to save you. Some of you need to hear this today. He doesn't just save you to save you. He saves you so that he can partner with you and create something beautiful in this world through you. He doesn't just save you so that he can add someone else to his list and the angels can party in heaven. Hey, one day this guy's gonna be with us and it's gonna be awesome. He has a purpose for your life here and now. Just like Paul said in in, in his letter to the Ephesians, You're saved by grace through faith. It's not of yourself. It's the free gift of God. And once you're saved, you become his masterpiece. Created to do good works in the world so that more people can be drawn to him. He's got a plan for your life. He's not putting you on the sidelines. He wants to use you. 
I read a story several years ago that's a really beautiful picture of this, and I'll close here. During the communist regime in Romania, Christians were being tortured left and right, and um, one of the guys who had been sentenced to be beaten to death uh, was a guy named Grecu, and the process of beating lasted for weeks. It, it was a slow and methodical beating so that it could be dragged on as long as possible. And so what the guards would do, what these torturers would do is they would come in and they would get their rubber rods, their mallets, and they would um, just beat Greco's feet for minutes. And then they'd stop and then they'd leave and he'd recover. And then they'd come back and then they would move to a different body part. And, and they would do this, they'd leave and then they'd come back and they'd leave and then they'd come back for weeks until finally he died from the beating. Um, the guard who led his torture was a member of the Central Committee of the Communist Party. His name was Rec, R-E-C-K. And during the beatings, uh, Rec said something to Grecu that the communists often said to Christians as they were beating them. And he said, and I'm going to paraphrase it, he said, you know I am God, right? I have the power of life and death over you. The one who is in heaven cannot decide to keep you in life. Everything depends on me. If I wish, you live. If I wish, you are killed. I am God. Sounds so much like Nebuchadnezzar to me. In that moment, though, um, um, I just can't even fathom this scene. Wreck is is beating this guy, and at some point in this torture, Greku looks at him, and, and he um, speaks the gospel to him. And just like Daniel, he is full of love, and full of compassion, and full of empathy. And he, and he says this, Rec actually gives this account later. I think I might have this on the screen. I do, good. He said, you don't know what a deep thing you have said. Every caterpillar in reality is a butterfly if it develops rightly. You have not been created to be a torturer or a man who kills. You have been created to become like God with the life of the Godhead in your heart. Many who have been persecutors just like you have come to realize, like the Apostle Paul, that it is shameful for a man to commit atrocities, that they can do much better things. And so they have become partakers of the divine nature. Jesus said to the Jews of his time, you are gods. Believe me, Mr. Reck, your real calling is to be godlike, to have the character of God and not a torturer. Now, in that moment, Rec didn't think anything of it. In fact, he left and went on with his life. But not too long after those words came back and they, they worked in his heart and Rec actually repented and turned from his sin and gave his life to Christ, which is why we have this story to his credit. Guys, I just want to tell you this and I'm going to close with this and you need to hear it. If you're in Christ, you need to be reminded of it. If you're not yet, you need to hear this and believe it. No one is ever too far gone. If God could save the king of Babylon, he's got the ability to save you too. If God could use the king of Babylon, 
he can use you too. Joshua 5.13, <laughs> this is the most wild, one of those wild stories. You gotta read it, I'm not gonna read the whole thing. And it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted his eyes and looked and behold, a man stood opposite him and his sword was drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said, are you for us or are you for our adversaries? And all the man said was no, but I'm the commander of the army of the Lord and now I have come. We need to get this today. What does that mean? No, are you for us? Or are you for our enemies? Are you for the people of God or are you for the pagans that we're about to conquer? And he says, no. What? It means that the commander of the army of the Lord had come from a place where there is no such thing as us and them. It means that he came from a place where there is a God who sits on a throne and he is full of mercy and he's full of compassion and he's full of grace and he's full of so much love that he sent his son into the world to die for everyone without distinction. Whether you are white or black or brown or Asian or whatever, whether you are male or female, whether you are rich or poor, whether you are a Republican or a Democrat, there is no us and there is no them in the kingdom of heaven. He sent his son for all of us. Listen, if you are still far from him today, he's chasing you down. He wants you because he loves you and he wants to redeem your life and he wants to restore your life. And so again, I would say, whether you're a slave trader or a murderer or a thief or a liar or an atheist or an agnostic or an adulterer or a pornographer or a persecutor, he loves you and he wants to save you. Turn your eyes to him, look to him today. Would you bow with me? I'm invite you to pray where you are silently and talk to God. However the Spirit's leading, and then we'll go to the table together.